This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution strategies. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Danielle Price. Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. They're a truth-seeking tool that aim to set the historical record straight after a period of injustice. You're probably familiar with the commission set up in South Africa to examine the human rights violations under the apartheid era. These commissions are typically set up after a transition of power or end of a conflict, but a new trend is emerging of Western democratic states establishing commissions to investigate historical abuses perpetuated against indigenous populations decades or even centuries ago. Australia, Canada, and Greenland have all set up such commissions. Norway, Sweden, and Finland have also set up their own commissions to look at treatment of indigenous groups that traditionally herded reindeer across the Nordic region. The Sami and minority groups such as the Kven, also known as Norwegian Finns. These groups were forced to assimilate into Norwegian culture by an official policy of Norwegianization that involved separating children from their families through residential schools, similar to what happened in Canada. On today's Peace Talks Radio episode, correspondent Danielle Price looks at the development of the Norwegian Truth and Reconciliation Commission, as well as others around the world, with three guests who study them. Later, we'll hear from Areshni Naidu Silverman, a senior director at the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience. She leads the Global Transitional Justice Initiative, which manages justice projects with civil society organizations in 17 countries, including Colombia, Guinea, Sri Lanka, and other countries in the Middle East and North Africa. Also later, we'll talk with Gloria Aye, a political scientist and lecturer at Harvard University. Her research focuses on themes including American politics, race and civil rights policy, and political reconciliation, among others. But first, Eileen Skar. She's a research professor at the Christian Mikkelsen Institute in Norway. Eileen is part of a team investigating the work of the Norwegian Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was set up in 2018 to investigate the impacts of the Norwegianization policy on Norway's indigenous population, the Sami, as well as injustices against minority groups, the Kven, also known as Norwegian Finns or Forest Finns. The Norwegianization policy was a state policy that was introduced by the Norwegian state around 1850. I think the, the, the law came in 1851 to be specific. And this was part of a nation building process whereby the state wanted to integrate the indigenous people, the Sami, and also the minority groups of Norway, so the Kvens, the Norwegian Finns, and the Forest Finns, into Norwegian mainstream society. And one of the main ways of making people mainstream Norwegians uh, was to force them to learn the Norwegian language. Now, I think I need to point out that Norway is a very long, it's a very long and extensive country. Geographically, it's huge. Um, And many of the Sami and the Kven live in the northernmost part of the countries where the population is very sparse. Geographical distances are huge. And at that point in time, the 1850s, uh, schooling was only for the privileged few. The idea was to introduce the Norwegian language uh, to these minority groups and our indigenous people, 
so a schooling system was gradually put into place. Um, they also, of course, wanted to preach the Bible and the Christian gospel to these people. And one way of doing that was to make children go to school. So into the 1900s, um, so-called residential schools were gradually introduced. Uh, more after, so, so clo the closer you got to the Second World War, which started in 1940 in Norway, the more residential schools you were built in the northern part of Norway. Um, I forgot to mention that the Sami people are originally nomadic people, uh, reindeer herders, or part of the Sami are reindeer herders, and of course they would move around with their reindeer. So the Norwegian state uh, created residential schools so that the Sami people could send their children to school while they moved around with the reindeer, and they were taught only weeks uh, every year. The children were taken away from their parents, sent to school in primary, so from the year of 8 to 10, uh, and forced to be away from the parents for a long period of time. And in these schools, they were only allowed to speak Norwegian, not Sami and not Kvien. A lot of times the schools were mixed because the Sami and the Kvien were, lived in the same areas. And frequently uh, there was intermarriage between these groups so that a child would be both Sami and Kvien. Uh, but regardless of whether they spoke Kvien, Sami or Norwegian or Finnish, uh, they would actually be forced to learn Norwegian in school. So language was one thing. Uh, preaching the Christian gospel was a second. And a third motivation uh, of the Norwegian state was actually benevolent in the sense that many Sami and Kvien were really poor uh, people. I mean, most of Norway was really poor in the 1850s, but uh, people living in the north of Norway were particularly poor. Um, there was widespread poverty, there was hunger, uh, hygiene, <clears throat> hygienic conditions were terrible. So... Part of the idea of the state was to sort of lift these people into modernity, into mainstream population, give them better opportunities in terms of work. But another incentive of learning Norwegian was that property rights became tied to knowing Norwegian at some point. So those Kvien and Sami who were not nomadic, but who actually either were fishermen or um, farmers, they could only own land if they knew Norwegian and signed their papers in Norwegian. So that was another motivation for te teaching people Norwegian and, you know, converting people, uh, trying to get them away from their regular way of traditional life and become non more Norwegian. So this assimilation policy um, of the Norwegian state was not was not a peculiar only to Norway. And I think I want to mention this because... Like I said, the Sami and the Kvien are cross-border people. And the same kind of policy or very similar kinds of policies were also enforced in Sweden and in Finland. The aim was the same, to strip people of their language and culture and traditional ways of life and thinking and make them, into, make them part of the nation. Let us not forget that the era from the 1850s onwards was part of a wider nation-building movement in all of Europe. It wasn't only in the Nordic countries. So I think we need to see these policies of assimilation in a much larger and broader context. And uh, I think I also want to mention that unlike, um, unlike the residential schools in Canada, for instance, that we've heard a lot about in later years with the Canadian Truth and Reconciliation Commission, 
um, there was actually a benevolent uh, streak in the Norwegian or the Nordic countries' policies, and that was gradually to bring people into society and make them part of the welfare state. Because another point of this policy, when you go further into the 1900s, was also to give people or children access not only to schooling, but also to health. So that was another big thing, you know, to to lift people out of poverty and give them access to health. Okay. But as you have written, the, the Sami population are fairly politically empowered today. Uh, quoting from your article, yes. the popularly elected Sami parliament has a consultation agreement with the Norwegian government. Legislation comprising Sami rights in different fields has been adopted. And the king has offered apology to the Sami for past policies. The Kven Norwegian Finns also now have status as national minorities. So why was a truth commission established now, so long after the abuses officially ended? I was really puzzled uh, to find out that we had a truth commission in my own country. Um, I had been working on truth commissions in Latin America and in Africa for many years. And normally truth commissions are set up after violent conflict. So after internal armed conflict, after military dictatorships, after uh, apartheid regimes, after one-party regimes with heavy repression to investigate, you know, broad and systematic gross human rights violations. So this was my concept and idea of a truth commission. And all of a sudden we have it in Norway. And I think we need to see the occurrence of these new commissions, not only in Norway in 2018, but also followed by similar commissions in Sweden and Finland. So there has been a movement in these Nordic countries, not only in Norway, but also in Sweden and Finland, uh, pushed by the Sami community for a truth commission. And I think we need to see this in a broader sort of global context where there has been a big focus on transitional justice over the last years. We've seen an outburst of truth commissions across the world. So this was like an institution that people knew about also in the Sami communities. Um, And there has been a huge international global focus on indigenous rights, departing from the 80s and onwards. So I think this rights consciousness thing has grown in the Sami communities very, very gradually. And uh, the concrete proposal uh, for a truth commission in Norway came, was made by um, uh, a legal scholar, actually, an Assami politician uh, who was head of a very small opposition, Sami political opposition party called Arya, um, Laila Susanavars. She had been involved in... um, in the UN, uh, and she was writing a thesis, and she travelled to Canada. She had a meeting with um, uh, one of the Canadian commissioners, a little child, and she was greatly inspired by this man, and she learned much more about what the Canadian Truth Commission had done in Canada, uh, where the focus was on residential schools and all the harms that were caused to Indigenous children in Canada. And she saw the parallel to residential schools in Norway, and her initial proposal was that a truth commission be established in Norway to look into this residential school policy in Norway 
and the the lack the the loss of language among the Sami population. So it was a very very narrow proposal to start off with. Uh, she benched this in the Sami Parliament, where she was heading this political party, and uh, she told me in an interview that uh, she wasn't really met with a lot of enthusiasm initially. The Sami Parliament was rather cool. Uh, like she said, they didn't say anything, and uh, I have come to learn over the last these last few years of research that when Sami people don't say anything, it's not that they don't know what to say, it's because they disagree. And gradually, um, she got people on board. And in the end, you know, after a lot of negotiations and politicking, uh, the Sami parliament officially requested the establishment of a truth commission from the Norwegian government. And uh, in the back room, the discussions were that if the Sami were given a truth commission, the, the Kren would also demand a truth commission. So this minister said no. And then two left-wing politicians in the national parliament, Stortinga, uh, got involved. Both of these two people are from the north of Norway, so they have a strong constituency in the north where the Sami and the Kvien live. They started a series of negotiations and um, eventually another proposal was floored not only by the Sami parliament this time, but also the Kvien were part of this, and the Norwegian Finns became part of the new proposal, formal proposal. And uh, eventually, you know, after a lot of negotiations, uh, the Labour Party, uh, Martin Kolberg, <clears throat> held an open hearing in the parliament. Uh, you know, they, they talked about the assimilation policy, basically, and the consequences that this had physically and culturally on the Sami and the Kvien and the Norwegian Finn people. And this moved the audience to the point where they actually managed to secure um, a majority vote for the establishment of the Truth Commission. And from the initial proposal that was made by Vars, which was a narrow focus on residential schools and the consequences for Sami children and language and culture, it had grown to include not only the Sami, but the Kvien, the Norwegian Finns, the Forest Finns, and a much, much broader mandate. Thank you. That's a really helpful history of how the commission came about. And that was um, a question I had also wanted to ask you. So I really appreciate that explanation. Mm. Um, but I wanted to ask you, are there examples of how the Sami and Kven populations are still impacted today uh, by the legacy of these policies? Yes, the loss of languages may be the, the biggest issue. Um, the Sami have managed to keep the language in the areas where a lot of Sami live, which is main reindeer herding areas. So the northern Sami, the majority of the Sami have kept their language, <clears throat> whereas the Kvien has, all, there are hardly any people who speak Kvien and only a handful who speak forest Finn. So loss of language, definitely. I understand that one aspect the commission is investigating is how the effects of the Norwegianization policy have affected the majority Norwegian population's view of Sami and Kven Norwegian Finns. Could you explain this a bit? Yeah, I, th I think lack of knowledge is probably the greatest problem because there hasn't been much in the education system about Sami Kvien, Norwegian Finns or Forest Finns. So I think ignorance among the majority of the population of the assimilation policy is the biggest problem. A second problem is stereotypes, lingering stereotypes of Sami, particularly Sami, but also Kvien. So 
recent reports show that racism is still quite rampant and more directed against the Sami than against the Kvin. So that's a second problem. A third problem is that uh, health investigations show that Sami people have you know, poorer health, basically, than the majority population, and suicide rates are also higher among Sami than among the majority, particularly among young men. Have you heard or read any of the testimonies? No, these are secret, uh, but some of the people who have given testimony to the Truth Commission have also published the testimonies in newspapers or on radio. So some of them have been made public with consent of the people giving, the person giving testimony. Were there any examples that you remember that stood out? Uh, the, The Truth Commission held open hearings in... I think about 40 meetings spread all over the country, but mainly in the north and in the areas where uh, most Sami and Kvin live. And at these meetings, they also asked people to tell their stories. Um, So that was another part of the testimonies that were public. Mainly, the stories are about um, the residential schools, how they were forced to learn Norwegian when they were children, how they were taken away from their parents. And um, and this another word that has been repeated over and over again in these public meetings is the word shame. You know, how people have felt shame growing up and being afraid of using their language. Um, and the younger generations will say that when they grew up, they heard people speaking, you know, either Sami Kvin or Norwegian Finn that they didn't understand. Their grandparents or their parents would speak this language um, to hide things from their kids. uh, Or, you know, it was like a secret language that children didn't have access to. Because the people who, you know, who lost the language, let's put it this way, the grandparents' generation of young children today will still know Sami and Kvin. It was they who didn't pass the languages on to their children. So that the second generation now, those who are young today, they are now the ones who want to revive the language. And they don't they can't go to their parents because their parents don't don't know how to speak Sami and Kvin. They have to go to their grandparents. So there is like a generation uh, that has really lost their language. And they are bitter. To come back to your question, they are the ones who are bitter because they really did not grow up learning the language of their parents. And this has been like a, it's been like a sore point because in many families, they didn't want to speak about it. So a lot of an, another thing that people have said in these meetings is that they grew up not knowing that they were Sami or Kvin. So not only was their language taken away, their identity, their sort of family history was kept hidden to them. And um, they feel that they have kind of lost out on an important part of their culture and their roots. And uh, this now there is a big movement, revival movement, both among the Sami and the Kvin, trying to access this ancestry and the traditions and the yoik, the, the singing, the traditional singing of the Sami and, you know, traditional ways of dressing. The kofta has become extremely popular again among young people, young Sami in particular, but also among Kvin. So there is there is a revival of trying to take back again um, what was taken away. And this has been like a recurrent theme 
in many of these stories. That was Dr. Eilin Skar, research professor at the Christian Mikkelsen Institute in Norway. And you can hear Daniel Price's entire interview with Dr. Skar at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Coming up next, we'll hear about transitional justice processes around the world and how successful they have been. Reshni Naidu Silverman is next after this short break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio. It's the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Danielle Price today. You can find all of our episodes dating back to 2002 online at peacetalksradio.com. It can be hard to know immediately how effective transitional justice processes like truth and reconciliation commissions actually are. How do we know that they worked? Our next guest, Areshni Naidu-Silverman, has been looking at transitional justice across the globe for over 20 years and has seen what has worked well and what hasn't. Correspondent Danielle Price. Areshni, firstly, can you explain what exactly a Truth and Reconciliation Commission is? How do they work? It's a truth-seeking tool that aims to set the historical record straight. Um, so it's in, in that sense, it's backward-looking. Um, but it's forward-looking in that it aims to, it enables people to imagine um, a new future based on peace and justice. Okay, thank you. And the most famous example of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission is South Africa, which has generally been considered to be a success. We're now a quarter century out from that process. What has actually happened as a long-term result? Uh, so the South African truth and reconciliation process, as you said, has been uh, celebrated globally. However, um, increasingly, uh, there's been more and more criticism of the process itself. Um, for starters, it had a very limited definition of uh, human rights violations. So it focused on uh, civil and political rights violations, and ignored economic, social, and cultural rights. And much of apartheid uh, was based on uh, racial segregation, but also um, an unequal division of resources between uh, white South Africans, black South Africans, Indians, and in South Africa, what biracial people were called coloreds. Um, it was also, uh, the amnesty clause was also problematic. So it offered people, uh, perpetrators 
an opportunity to come forward to share the truth about whatever acts uh, they perpetrated in exchange for amnesty. However, many uh, perpetrators came forward, uh, shared partial truths, uh, often with very little remorse, um, and there was a burden placed on survivors to forgive uh, the perpetrators and kind of move on. Um, one, the success of truth commissions uh, is often judged on uh, the way victims are treated and um, and often the delivery around reparations particularly. Uh, and to date, there are thousands of victims in South Africa uh, that are still fighting for reparations. And you said uh, at the beginning of your response there that globally it has been widely celebrated. Um, so the criticism that you're speaking of, is, is that more internally inside of South Africa or is that uh, shifting globally as well? No, it's global. Uh, I think at that time, uh, the reason it was it was so celebrated is that it was one of the few truth commissions that was uh, public. So there were, it was on national television. Um, they had offered amnesty. It offered a platform for victims to come forward. Um, so there was. It was. It was very innovative in multiple ways. Uh, however. Uh, years later, uh, we still see that the Truth Commission didn't do much in terms of repairing. Uh, so, for example, in South Africa, there was um, intercommunal violence between black South Africans and Indian South Africans. Uh, and much of, the, of this came uh, from the fact that some of the economic issues in South Africa are still widely unaddressed. In addition to that, um, there's constant media reports uh, about xenophobic attacks against um, other African nationals by South Africans. Uh, again, also based on um, the perceived uh, economic disparities between um, South Africans and uh, African nationals. So there's a perception that African nationals are coming to South Africa, taking away jobs. Uh, and lots of this goes back to the Truth Commission because the Truth Commission did not address um, the economic issues that, that, that came with apartheid. So they weren't addressed. And um, I think apart from looking at South Africa, uh, there's more and more um, critiques by practitioners working in the field, academics, uh, that transitional justice um, in lots of ways is unable to address some of the root causes of conflict. So it does it very superficially, and it's also a very political process. Uh, so it depends on who's in power, the political will towards uh, implementing the recommendations. So... Um, as I said, there's criticism that it does not uh, address root causes. And in lots of conflict contexts, as well as uh, authoritarian contexts, um, economic issues, social, cultural issues uh, are key to the human rights violations. And, and that continues to not be addressed through transitional justice processes. 
Um, Arashni, we want to talk also about some less well-known examples of truth and reconciliation commissions. So let's start with the Gambia. Uh, in 2017, the Truth, Reconciliation, and Reparations Commission was set up to investigate abuses under the leadership of President Yahya Jame, which lasted from 1994 to 2017. What was the outcome of this process? So one of the positive uh, things about Truth Commissions is that it aims to uncover a past. Uh, and in lots of conflict situations, as well as in authoritarian situations, as in the case of Gambia, um, there's lots of things, there's lots of silences in the society. So things are hidden. Uh, people refuse to talk about uh, acts that were perpetrated. Often victims are living, continue to live next to the perpetrator in lots of contexts. Um, and what the what transitional justice, the truth commissions do is that they allow for these silences to be broken and for some of the shame and taboo around some of this uh, to be resolved. So that's, that's what happened in the Gambia context as well. It was able to uncover some of the truths that happened under the Jama regime. Similar to other truth commissions in other contexts, there were challenges. Um, and one of the challenges of that commission was that... Uh, and this is also similar to the South African truth and reconciliation process, is that there weren't spaces made for women's testimony. Uh, so in the South African process, for example, uh, they hadn't thought about uh, how women were going to testify. And so women came forward testifying about their husbands, about their brothers, their sons as victims, but didn't testify about things like conflict-related sexual violations that they experienced. So after much advocacy from local women's groups, uh, the South African Truth Commission set up um, special women's hearings for women to testify about their experiences of violations. Uh, similarly, in Gambia, there was very little thought that went into uh, how women were going to testify. So uh, there were local partners uh, one of our local partners called World Women in Liberation, um, that set up l women's listening circles for women to share their experiences of what happened. And this happened concurrently as the Truth Commission was going on. So that, for example, is one of the challenges and shortcomings that we've seen in a few Truth Commissions to date. I wanted to ask you now about Colombia. Uh, as part of the peace agreement reached in 2016 between the Colombian government and the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC, who had been in conflict since the 1960s, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission was to be created. What progress has happened there? What was different about that Truth Commission as compared to previous commissions, which is interesting, uh, as we start looking more and more into climate change, environmental rights, that kind of thing, is that, that truth, the Colombian Truth Commission uh, cited the, the land, Mother Earth, as a victim of the conflict. Uh, so I suspect that that's, that would be something that we would be seeing more um, in truth commissions in the future, uh, particularly, I think, if indigenous communities um, advocate for something like that. 
Joining us today on Peace Talks Radio is Ereshni Naidu-Silverman, the Senior Program Director for the Global Transitional Justice Initiative at the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience. Ereshni, how can transitional justice processes be evaluated? How do we know whether or not they worked uh, in the examples that we've been discussing? There's been more and more written recently about whether transitional justice fulfills the goals that it aims to achieve. There's been criticism that transitional justice processes are time-bound, and we found that in our work as well. Given that they're time-bound and they they very resource-intensive in terms of human resource as well as financial resources, they tend to focus on a narrow sliver of what actually happened in the past and tend to fulfill political negotiations or political needs. There is increasing questioning about whether transitional justice actually works. The problem as well is that in terms of evaluation, while you can evaluate the short-term results of a transitional justice process like a truth commission, the fact is that transitional justice goals of truth, justice, and reconciliation actually happen over a long term and may even happen over generations. And so it's difficult to assess whether it's it's been successful or not. But as I said, there are certain indicators, for example, whether it was victim-centered, whether it was local locally owned, um, whether survivors and victims received reparations, whether they were treated in a in a, in a specific way in terms of was there a consultative process, were they included in the process, uh, were women included. So I think we can set up a list of indicators for short-term success, uh, but in terms of longer-term success, uh, that's a little bit more difficult to assess. And are there also negatives of transitional justice processes? So beyond um, if, you know, certain factors have been left out of the process or if it um, is difficult to see the, the impacts over time, are there any potential bad outcomes or have there been examples of bad outcomes? The, I, I don't have any specific examples, but what truth commissions do and I think the broader transitional justice process, whether you're looking at uh, institutional reform, prosecutions, reparations, truth-seeking, is that it sets up expectations, particularly for survivor and victim communities. And uh, what needs to happen during that process is that uh, survivor and victim's expectations need to be managed. There's There's generally a perception that we're going to go through a truth commission process. We're going to uncover the truth. There's going to be a report. We're going to get reparations. We're going to get recognition. Uh, I think that's something that lots of victims look for is recognition that uh, they have been harmed. There has been a wrong done. And in some cases, they don't get that recognition. Uh, in lots of contexts that I've worked, I've found that uh Often victims only want to be want somebody to listen to their story and want want somebody to recognize that there has been a harm done. Um, and in lots of communities, victims are ostracized uh, for the violations that they experienced. And truth commissions sometimes don't often fulfill those expectations and needs of survivors. 
Um, and we do, of course, have to talk about the U.S. now. Um, with another guest, I discussed the use of local commissions in the U.S., but does the U.S. need a national commission? Um, one aspect uh, could be about the indigenous population, as you mentioned, and then, of course, there's the issue of race relations in the U.S. and the history of slavery. Do we need a national commission for this, and also could it work in the American context? So in an ideal world, yes, there, there would be a commission, I think partly to, again, um, break all those silences, uncover the denial, because uh, there's lots of denial in the U.S. We see this in the media regularly. Um, and also call out the bystanders, which is what the South African Truth Commission did as well, uh, where there's a group of people that say, we didn't know it was happening when they benefited from the from the discrimination, from the violations. So I think it would be useful to have one in the US. However, that said, I'm not sure if it's logistically possible. Right now we're seeing a proliferation of uh, local commissions at different levels, at the, at the local government level, at the state level. Uh, California is kind of leading with its reparations task force. Um, but um, I think because the states themselves and the way the U.S. Um, is set up as a federation um, is that it's difficult because each state has very uh, particular needs and there's multiple groups of survivors and victims, right? There's a broad range of violations that we could look at in each community and in each state. Ideally, there would be multiple commissions set up alongside each other that to fulfill one kind of national goal around justice, truth, and reconciliation that actually meets the needs of local communities because each context in the U.S. is so different. The only other thing I made a note of is um, knowledge production. There's, there's also been an increased criticism in the field of transitional justice about uh, who produces knowledge because local communities, uh, local civil society organizations, they know exactly what they need and they know exactly what, um, how to move forward on certain issues and it also creates ownership and sustainability of transitional justice processes. You can read more about the Truth Commission examples described by Arashni Naidu Silverman through a link to the Global Initiative for Justice, Truth and Reconciliation at peacetalksradio.com. That's where you can also hear the full extended interview between Arashni and Daniel Price at peacetalksradio.com. In a moment, what about Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in the United States? Stay tuned after this break.
You are listening to Peace Talks Radio, the radio show and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is series producer Paul Ingalls with you, along with correspondent Danielle Price. Today, Danielle is looking at transitional justice processes like truth and reconciliation commissions. The United States has never had a national commission to look at the treatment of the indigenous populations or to confront the legacy of slavery. But local level commissions in some states and cities have started. Dr. Gloria Aye tells us about some of these efforts and the viability of a national commission. She's a professor at Harvard. Correspondent Danielle Price. Why has the United States not had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission at the national level to investigate the abuses against the indigenous population or against enslaved people and black Americans? There have been attempts to actually establish a national process, of course, um, in February of 2021, um, Congresswoman Barbara Lee and Senator Cory Booker um, reintroduced their legislation to ask for the establishment of a United States Commission on Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation, which would be looking specifically at the effects of slavery, the legacy of um, systemic institutional racism, the continued uh, discrimination of Black Americans and other people of color in the United States, also considering the ways in which the laws in the United States, um, the political economic system continues to have um, impact on people of color and uh, Black Americans. So that legislation was reintroduced, and it is also um, supposed to uh, work in conjunction with uh, H.R. 40, which was introduced by Representative Sheila Jackson Lee. And can you just explain what H.R. 40 is? So this is uh, legislation to form a commission to study and develop reparations. So specifically looking at efforts uh, for reparations in the United States. So it's not for lack of effort, I, I should say. And it, if, if there is um, support from Democrats and Republicans for this type of legislation, hopefully in the future we would see a national um, commission, national truth commission here in the United States. And so even before asking why the U.S. hasn't adopted a, a process, it, it's helpful to think of if this type of process would be valuable in the U.S. context and what would make it successful or not. And um, just to also give a little additional background, there have been some uh, local level processes um, across the country historically. But I'll say in terms of a more national process, this is not an example of a truth commission as it has been defined by transitional justice scholars and those involved in the work specifically, but I would point to the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians, um, which was established um, by the U.S. Congress in 1980 um, to study the internment of Japanese Americans during um, the Second World War. So that type of a national process was um, really valuable um, 
at the time when it was it was um, it was established, uh, because ultimately um, there was um, reparations were paid to over uh, eighty two thousand Japanese Americans, and so um, by looking at some of the conditions under which um, the internment of Japanese Americans occurred and then the the impact for that community, uh, it was a useful process for the government to go through. Maybe first going to the the last example that you mentioned, has this been, you know, proposed as um, something to leverage in terms of trying to uh, have similar processes for other groups who have been harmed um, by the U.S., you know, for example, specifically enslaved people and Black Americans. Um, if we are talking about, you know, um, the the formal apologies provided and the reparations, has there been attempts to say, you know, look, we were able to do this once. Can we try to do a similar process uh, for other groups? I would argue that this particular case and the work of um, the commission, um, and I'll just uh, call it CWRIC um, in shorthand, the CWRIC commission hasn't, um, that that hasn't been at the forefront of conversations around um, reparations in general. It is mentioned sometimes, but it's not, it's not um, the focus. And I I wouldn't argue necessarily that it should be. Uh, the, the conversation around reparations is very complex, um, partly because uh, there isn't universal acknowledgement that, um, for example, uh, African-American descendants of enslaved peoples are still continuing to feel um, the legacy of slavery and continuing to be harmed by systemic oppression um, and the the uh, current political socioeconomic system. So in thinking about what that conversation looks like broadly, I would say it's not even to speak to what has been offered as precedent because people don't want to make that connection but rather the conversation has to focus more on if we are actually seeing continued harm to populations in the present day. And there is clear evidence that um, um, certain populations in the United States continue to be marginalized, victimized, oppressed, and feel the effects of systemic uh, racism uh, and racial inequality in, in numerous forms. Uh, if you look at the um, judicial system, the prison industrial complex, um, the unequal treatment of, of different groups um, in numerous sectors of society, then there is a clear um, line that can be drawn to, of course, um, the Jim Crow system of, of um, uh, segregation and then back to historically um, slavery. You've written about a localized effort um, in Greensboro, North Carolina, mm-hmm. uh, and you wrote um, that Greensboro, the city of Greensboro had modeled their 2004 Truth and Reconciliation Commission after the South African TRC. 
to investigate the Greensboro massacre. Yeah. So I was hoping um, first you could um, just give a bit of a background on what that event was. Yes. So um, in uh, 1979, so on on the 3rd of November in that year, in 1979, uh, five people were murdered in um, Greensboro, North Carolina, when um, the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK, and uh, the American members of the American Nazi Party um, fired into um, a group of uh, protesters who were... Um, uh, protesting against uh, labor rights issues, uh, race-related race um, issues in the community of Greensboro, North Carolina, and surrounding areas. And the, the backstory, the issue around that is that there was actually media coverage around that event. Um, so there were it was clearly documented. There was video footage about what happened. Um, even though there was awareness that there was going to be a march, there were going to be protesters, there was actually no police presence on um, November 3rd, 1979. And so it became a conversation, um, especially by those who um, the survivors of, of the event and the community that had been harmed to try and pursue accountability and justice because um, ultimately uh, those who were found, who were charged with um, the, the murders were acquitted um, after two um, criminal trials. They were ultimately found civilly liable, but um, community members, um, survivors were interested in just understanding how a situation like that could have occurred in their community. So the Greensboro Truth and Reconciliation Commission was formed. The work of the Greensboro Truth Commission began in, officially began in 2004. And uh, this commission spent about two years trying to um, review documents, um, investigate, do some investigation into um, the Greensboro massacre, uh, review testimony, hear, hear from um, people who had been involved, and they also hosted a number of public forums um, across Greensboro. And then they ultimately um, released a, a really long, detailed report, I believe about 529 pages, um, that included um, specific recommendations to the city of Greensboro. And they were in, in many ways uh, successful eventually. Greensboro did acknowledge um, the findings in the report. They issued an apology, an official apology. Um, there have been changes in the Greensboro Police Department. Even if the work of a commission doesn't seem to be successful in in the short term ultimately um, if we if we think long term there is potential so um, I look to the green to Greensboro's process as an example of how laying the seeds of this type of important work can um, ultimately pay off it's often described as the first official type of um, 
commission in the in the United States. Are we seeing any um, momentum growing from from that first process? Are there other processes that might be coming up in other locations uh, at the local level? What I would mention is the uh, the Maryland Lynching Truth and Reconciliation Commission as another example to look to for um, what is possible in the United States. So this particular commission um, was established in 2019. Its mandate is to look specifically at racially voted um, lynchings and hold public meetings to try and document, understand the context in which um, many of these lynchings happened. It is trying to investigate cases that happened around Maryland, and it, it is definitely one to look at. Considering the state of the United States right now when, uh, you know, things are so polarized and we are really quite fractured um, across the states, do you have an opinion on whether a national commission is really, or a national process is is really what's needed in this country, or if local efforts might be just as effective or more so? That is a fantastic question, and one I have been grappling with as someone who um, tries to study these processes. Um, I personally feel that a national truth and reconciliation process in the United States is important because at least at the federal or at the national level, there should be some recognition that these issues are nationwide and sh- and attention should be paid in that regard. What I have um, personally been uh, trying to uh, have discussions around or advocate for or propose for the U.S. context is perhaps a umbrella-style type of commission that's working in concert with local-level efforts so that the local efforts can be community context-specific, thinking about the ways in which um, issues that are really central to a specific um, community can be addressed directly, but still have maybe um, support from a national level um, organization or oversight body. Um, That may be the way to go. How that would function practically is uh, another conversation that perhaps those who are working directly in this space can can, um, consider. But I I think efforts like um, what I mentioned at the start of our conversation, um, the the establishment of the United States Commission on Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation that has already been um, proposed um, from legislation, Um, that is also useful because we cannot um, overestimate the value of official apologies official efforts to um, work towards seeking reparations for communities and individuals that have been harmed. And so even as local level efforts may be um, trying to work towards truth telling, um, truth seeking, truth acknowledgement, um, investigating harms, documenting those harms, that should also 
take place at the national level in some capacity. So I think maybe a, a sort of hybrid approach would be the way to go. In order for there to be um, more unity, more um, progress across the board for all Americans, our nation needs to critically look at its history, look at the ways in which groups have been disadvantaged, marginalized, oppressed in, in many ways, have, their, have had their human rights um, trampled upon or stripped in. And thinking about how to move forward requires honest conversations about our history and acknowledgement that in order for this country to be as strong and to be as, as prosperous as everyone wants it to be. Um, we have to take a, a honest, we have to take an honest critical look um, at what some of the problems are and find effective means of addressing them. And this is what the truth telling efforts of these types of commissions try to do. If we look to the um, January 6th commission, we see how partisan that was, and it kind of leaves a lot to be desired in terms of thinking about the possibilities for a National Truth Commission. But hopefully, as, as more people become aware of the value of these types of processes, even as I said, given some of the limitations, it, it, it does offer hope about what can, what can be done. That was political scientist Dr. Gloria Aye. Dr. Aye teaches courses at Harvard University, including transitional justice and the politics of truth commissions. Find more about her and all of our guests at peacetalksradio.com. That's also where you can go to hear Danielle's complete interviews with each. Also, hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2002. See photos of our guests, read and share transcripts. We invite you to sign up for our podcast. You can find us at Apple Podcasts and a lot of other platforms, too. All of our episodes are there as well that you can download for free. We love to hear from you as well. You can write to us at info at peacetalksradio.com. Questions and comments about any episode, info at peacetalksradio.com. Also at our website, consider making a donation to keep this program going into the future. It's all at peacetalksradio.com. While most of our support comes from listeners like you, we also have a little bit of help from the Albuquerque Community Foundation Ties Fund. Also, a salute to KUNM at the University of New Mexico, our first ever radio station back in 2003. Nola Days Moses is the executive director of Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Danielle Price today, for co-founder Suzanne Kreider and all of our correspondents at Peace Talks Radio, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to, and yes, for supporting Peace Talks Radio.